0: John. I'm going to make one final Jesus connection. And this is by far, I think, one of the coolest Jesus connections to the First Testament that I've ever learned in my entire life. And that's why it's worth going over. In the Gospel of John, the cleansing of the temple, chapter 2, verse 12. Gospel of John. should have told you a chapter a while ago. John chapter 2, verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mothers and brothers and disciples. And they stayed there a few days. Now Jewish feast of Passover was near. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. He found in the temple courts, those who were selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers sitting at the tables. So he made a whip of cords, judgment, and he drove them out of the temple courts with the sheep and the oxen. And he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. This is Ezekiel. What did God do to the people of Israel? He went into the temple, he judged it, condemned it, he scattered the people across the world. The coins are representative of the people. He's judging them for what they've done. They've defiled. Remember he gave them a tour of the temple? He said, look at that evil there, and look at that evil there, and look at that evil there. I'm going to leave the temple, I'm going to destroy it, and I'm going to scatter my people. So what has Jesus done? He's come into the temple. And he's seeing the evil there, there, and there, and there. He's scattering the people and whipping a whip and judging them. Then he says this, To those who sold doves and he said, Take these things away from here. Do not make my father's house a marketplace. Now Jesus did something that the Pharisees did not like. He called the temple his father's house. You're not allowed to do that. God is the holy, almighty judge of the universe who sits up there. And how dare you use intimate language like father, abba, daddy. Of the God of the universe, that was one of his many blasphemies, according to the Pharisees. So he takes the Father's, he takes God's temple, his house. He says, "That's my Father's house." Now, not only is that pointing to sonship, the Son of God language, but it's also making his relationship with the Father extremely intimate and personal. But he's making it very clear that it's Father's house. So. This is what John's telling you right now. Welcome to math. Temple equals father's house, right? Let's keep reading. It says disciples remembered what it was written: the zeal for the house will be devour him, devour me. So then the Jewish leaders responded, "What sign can you show us? Since you are doing these things, so give us a sign to prove that you're a prophet of God. Remember, a prophet must prove himself with a sign." Jesus replied, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. Then the Jewish leaders said to him, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you're going to raise it up by three days? But Jesus is speaking about the temple of his body. So after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture, and the scripture for them is the First Testament. That Jesus spoken. So father's house equals Jesus' body, right? So Jesus now tells you in John, the father's house is my body. Right there, he's telling you Ezekiel's vision of a temple is not a temple. It's of Jesus. Right there, Jesus with his own mouth said, you're not looking forward to the rebuilding of a temple. You're looking forward to the rebuilding of my body. I am the temple. And you, that's a tiny little verse, and we've all heard it a million times, but without Ezekiel, you don't realize. See, this is the problem. When you're in Ezekiel, years and years away from the Gospels, and you do the Gospels over here, it's hard to make connections. This is why it's beneficial to try to read the whole Bible in a year or something like that, over and over and over again. The more you read something, the more connections can be happened because you remember. The first thing you read the Bible in a year or something like that, you don't remember half the things you've read. There's so much there. But you start doing it again and again and again, and you start remembering things. You're like, oh, wait a minute, I've heard this before. And you start realizing, that, oh, my gosh, that makes sense. He's talking about his body. He's going to destroy it and rebuild it. But he's not destroying a physical temple. He's going to destroy his body, and rebuild it. What do you call the destruction of Jesus' body and the rebuilding of it? The death and resurrection, the crucifixion. He's talking about that. Now, we know he's talking about the crucifixion here, but we've never made the connection to Ezekiel. The father's house is Jesus, and the father's house is the temple. That makes sense because God said, I don't want a temple, but I'm going to raise up for you, David, a descendant, and he will build me a household. Not a physical temple, but people from all nations coming into a new Garden of Eden, right? So here's what happens. Now you've got to go Luke. So Luke is broken into three sections. Chapters 1 through 9 is Jesus in the Galilee. And chapters 9 through 19 is Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. And 19 through the end of 24, I think it is, is his crucifixion. The Passion Week and all that kind of stuff. It's easy to remember because it's 9 9-9. Nine. Nine, is the breaking point between the first two and 19 is the breaking point of the next one. This is what Jesus does. Chapter 9, he does something. He goes to Peter for the first time and says, Who do you say I am? And Jesus is like, Well, some people say you're a prophet. Da-da-da-da-da. No, no, no. Who do you say I am? I think you are the Messiah. Now remember, Messiah means king. Who's come to save us. He says, You've spoken correctly. When that's the first time that Luke... Puts in the words of other people that Jesus is the Messiah. It's the first confession of the people. But the minute the people confess that, not all the people, but Peter representing a group of people who get it, the minute, now Peter does mess it all up a few minutes later after that, but that's not the point right now. The minute Peter confesses, you are the king, now remember the gospel has always been about the king coming. Very rarely have the prophets talked about the death and resurrection of the the Messiah. They've talked about the Messiah coming to build a kingdom where he kicks all evil and destroys it and brings a new nation. And, David, and Peter says, I think you're it. Meaning you're the prince that sits in the entrance of the temple. You're the prince that's going to destroy Gog. You're the prince that's going to make a perpetual covenant. You're the prince that's going to destroy all evil and war. That's what Peter is saying. I think you're him. And then what does Jesus immediately say after that? I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. It's the first time he ever mentions his death. It's after Peter finally confesses, you're king. Meaning that the only way that that kingdom of God can come is through my destruction. From 9 to 19, he talks about his death all the time. And if you didn't realize that he was going to die on the cross, you would think he was some morbid weirdo fascinated with death if you didn't get what it really meant. And that's what they thought. They were like, how many times the disciple says, no, 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 stop talking like that, Jesus. You're supposed to kick Roman butt, not die. But he starts about his death. The minute they confess he is the king who's going to bring the kingdom of God and rebuild Jerusalem without any evil or any pagan nation in the world ever again, he says, I'm going to die. And for 9 to 19, he says, I'm going to die. 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 As he moves towards Jerusalem or down to Jerusalem, Now it's up to Jerusalem, because when you're going to the temple, you're always going up, no matter where you are. Then, what does he do? He comes to chapter 19, and he does something. He gets up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he transforms into the glory, the Shekinah glory of God, and they start talking about his exodus. The exodus is his leaving this life into redemption, bringing redemption, right? Right? Now he's told you he's the Shekinah glory of God. He has not entered Jerusalem yet. He's standing on a hill outside Jerusalem, on the eastern side of Jerusalem, shining like a big ball of fire and light. And fire always represents judgment. And he's going to go in and judge. But what is he going to judge? He's going to judge himself on the cross. And God comes the second time that God's ever spoken, the first time was a baptism. And God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. But this time he says, this is my son. Listen and obey everything he says. So now he puts a greater sense of authority on him. And wait. So then he stands with Moses and Elijah, the first of the prophets and the last of the major prophets. The bringer of the law and the bringer of miracles. And he talked about his exodus, which means he's showing he's going to do something they can never do. They were the greatest prophets that ever existed, and they both rebelled against God, and they both were killed for their sins. And Jesus passed the test in the the wilderness and never sinned, never has sinned, so he's become the greater Moses, the greater Elijah, and he's going to do something that they were never able to do, bring a real exodus. Moses failed to bring a true exodus because they still rebelled against him in the wilderness. Elijah failed to bring a true exodus because he didn't anoint the kings like he was supposed to, and everything fell apart. And Jesus is going to do the Exodus in a way that nobody else ever could. He's going to become the greater Moses and the greater Elijah, the two greatest people ever. And what does he do? The triumphal entry as king. If you're a Jew and you know your First Testament, you're thinking, wait a minute. He just said he is the Father. He just said he is the temple. He just revealed himself, the Shekinah glory of God, And we haven't seen the Shekinah glory of God enter Jerusalem since the exile. We haven't seen the Shekinah glory of God enter the temple. So all of a sudden now, in the same vision of Ezekiel, Jesus begins to ride across the Mount of Olives through the Kedron Valley. He goes up and enters the temple, and everybody begins to declare him as king has arrived at the temple. And then he cleanses the temple again, a second time, because he's the new temple. And he's the Shekinah glory of God returning to Jerusalem. And you're like, isn't this it? Yes, but he goes to the cross. And what happens? He gets destroyed. Now, before he goes to the cross, he says this. In John chapter 13 and 14, he starts saying things like, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, and I'll come back again. Where I go, you cannot go with me. Now, Peter says, I'll go with you. I'll go with you. He's like, really? Can you actually go with me and do what I want? And then he says, will you lay down your life for another? Can you drink the cup of wrath like I will? Now, everybody agrees that he's talking about his death there. Everything in that language is talking about his death. I'm going to go away and die, and I'll come back again. But I have to go away and die. You can't go with me. No one can do this. Moses tried it. Elijah did it. David tried it. David did. Nobody has been able to redeem you. I'm going to go away and die and come back. I'm going to destroy the temple and rebuild it. It says it over and over again in 13, 14, 15, and 16 of John. It's the upper room discourse It's the longest section of Jesus talking nonstop in the entire Bible. And then he says, remain in me and I'll remain in you. Remain in me and I'll remain in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you produce fruit, all this kind of stuff. You're the people of God. If you have faith in me, you're the new children of God. And I will lift you up and you will produce fruit. If you do not produce fruit, I will cut you off and throw you in the fire. Judgment, death, outside of salvation. And then he says this. I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. That word in the Hebrew does not mean mansion. It means a permanent, perpetual residence. Every single time John uses that word, he talks about it in a relational way with us dwelling with God and us dwelling with each other in perfect unity. In fact, immediately after that in chapter 17, Jesus is going to pray for unity between us and with him like he has it with the Trinity. So he says, I am my Father's house for me. Now, we've always taught that this is heaven. He's going to heaven to prepare a place for you. He's going to get a little bed ready for you and put little mints on it. And it's going to be a big, big mansion where we can play football all the time. (laughs) And one day we'll get there. Now, I abhor that song. I'm sure Jeff Moore in the distance are great Christian people, but that is the most blasphemous, ridiculous song I've ever heard in my entire life, Christian. Because basically the whole song is about us getting everything that we've ever wanted, a big mansion and lots of football, and I get to do whatever I want, and this is going to be awesome. It's nothing about dwelling with Jesus. We have turned heaven into a materialistic, the, 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 the American dream that we never got. It is not a mansion. John already told you who the Father's house is. Who is it? So when Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms, what is he saying? in me. He also says right after that, remain in me and I'll remain in you. And then he says after that, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He's already told you that he must destroy his house, the father's house, which is him to rebuild it, to prepare a place for you. Now here's what's really cool. In the tabernacle, how many rooms were there? Two. But how many rooms was God in? One. And who was allowed in there? One priest, one time a year, for minutes. Why does Jesus have to destroy the temple and rebuild it? He has to destroy it with more and rebuild it with more rooms. All the nations, all the people are going to be dwelling with God. He says, remain in me and I'll remain in you. In my Father's house are many dwelling rooms. There are not many dwelling rooms in the Father's house. There's only one for the priest to get in and out as quickly as he possibly can because he's going to die because he's a sinner. Jesus is going to destroy his body and rebuild it into the temple that God has always wanted, the Garden of Eden, and he's going to rebuild it with multiple rooms in it so that people from all the nations can flow into the many gates and the small walls and dwell with him. And what happens when Jesus dies on the cross? The veil to the tabernacle, the temple, rips. And Paul says in Ephesians, the barrier wall between God, the veil, has been torn down. Why? Because there are now many rooms. And Jesus went to prepare a place for you. He went to the cross to die, to build a room inside of him for you to dwell with. It's not about heaven one day. The many rooms is about you and Christ and him and you now. And we all can dwell with it. Now it gets cooler. When he gets on the cross, he gets stabbed in the side. And what comes out of his side? Blood and water. Like Ezekiel's vision. And it flows out. And John, the same guy who's writing this gospel and telling you all this, says in 1 John that Christ came with the blood and the water, and the water is the Spirit of God. And the water, the Spirit of God now flows out to all people. And what immediately happens after Jesus goes up into heaven, the Holy Spirit comes down like little Shekinah glories of God and starts entering all the many rooms of Jesus. And they start accepting Christ and then Paul comes along in Ephesians and says, you are a dwelling place for God. And then Paul says, the spirit resides in you. And then he says, Peter tells you that you are, Christ is in you. And then Peter says that Christ is the living stone. And we're all living stones being built on him to become the new temple. And he uses all his language. It's not about a literal, real temple. Jesus saying, I am the temple. And I'm going to die on the cross so that all people can enter into this temple now. And that the temple can be the world and much bigger than anything that you've ever imagined. And he even says, this is my bread, that my body broken, destroyed for you. My blood, the wine. Now, what is the sign of the new covenant? Bread, olive oil, and wine. Every single time God talked about the covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31, Joel chapter 2, Ezekiel chapter 11. Every time he always begins or ends it with talking about, and there will be abundance of wine, new grain, and olive oil in the land. So what does Jesus do? The first miracle he ever performs is an abundance of wine because it's the sign of the new covenant. Then in the upper room, he breaks the bread, and he multiplies the bread over and over and over again throughout his ministry. And then he connects the bread and the wine to himself because he's making a new covenant. But that new covenant is initiated through the destruction of the temple, his father's house, his own body, to prepare a place for you. And then oil was always used to anoint people as the Messiah, the anointed one, the king, the priest, and the prophet. So at Pentecost, the oil the Holy Spirit is pouring out on everybody's head. It's no longer for Levitical priests anymore or Judaite kings anymore. It's, and no, it's not just certain prophets, it's everybody. A day will come when I'll pour my Spirit on you, and all of you will know God. Jesus is saying, I am Ezekiel's vision. I am that. And then when you get to Revelation, it says there was no temple in the new heaven and earth because the Lamb is our temple. If you think the temple is a sign of the kingdom of God, then why does Revelation say there is no temple? What God is saying, what Jesus is saying is, my Father's house is this building right now. And you've built a building and tried to contain him and you've defiled it. That was never his goal. He wanted Adam and Eve to expand. So I'm going to do what you can't do. I'm going to ride into the temple as Ezekiel's vision fulfilled, and I'm going to become the temple. And I'm going to destroy my body to become the sacrifice that nobody else could ever been. And I'm going to be the exodus that nobody could have ever done. And when I come back to life, which is a sign of me as the king and the priest I'm going to rebuild this kingdom to have many rooms for everybody, to fulfill Ezekiel's vision. And you will be commanded by me because God told you to obey everything I've told you to, to go out into all the nations and expand the garden and get as many people into all these rooms as you possibly can. The kingdom of God, the temple, is being built now. Every time somebody comes to Christ, another living stone is being built in the temple. Yes, the rebuilding of the temple is the sign of Jesus. It's just not a physical building in Jerusalem, it's the church. It's people coming to Christ. And every single time you see more people coming to Christ and more people talking about the gospel and more people praying at the the state house down there about the racism and stuff, you're seeing the temple being rebuilt. And one day he will come back and he will finish the building of the temple literally on the entire planet. And we will all be the temple of God. We are the temple because he is the temple and he's in us. And the Shekinah glory is in us. And what he's saying is one day the Garden of Eden will be everywhere. And you won't need a physical building anymore. And you won't need a Mosaic covenant anymore. And you won't need rituals anymore because Christ will do what all those things could have never done. It will give you the ability to actually be perfect and obedient in the presence of God. And you won't need rituals. You won't need buildings. You won't need holy days anymore. You won't need sacrifices. Christ is going to begin the work in us. And we're going to become a bigger and bigger, bigger temple until it fills the whole earth. The whole point is to get us back to the garden, except what Adam and Eve should have ever done to begin with expand it with lots of people in it. That's my Father's house. You are the dwelling places. And you become the dwelling places in the Father's house because the Father is in you and you're in him. And it all becomes symbiotic. And this is Jesus pulling all the ropes and tying all the knots in himself. And when you get to the Gospels, that's just a little taste. You see even more knots being tied. There's so many more things I could talk about. And some things that you've already learned from other people. But does that make sense? This is what Ezekiel's talking about. And when you talk about physical temp- temples... Well then this is like eating the most amazing steak, a banquet meal that you've ever had that the most amazing loving person's ever prepared for and you're like, yeah, I'd rather have Bologna and crackers. It's so much cooler than just a rebuilding of a temple. It's so much cooler than that. Does this make sense? In conclusion to the pre-exilic prophets as a whole, one of the points that Yahweh's been making through both the pre-Assyrian and pre-Babylonian prophets Is that ever since he has brought them out of Egypt, they have constantly rebelled as a nation against him. No matter how many times he blessed them, they came back to him in repentance, they always turned back to their idolatry and their social injustice. These are the sins that God specifically condemned over and over and over again throughout all these prophets. Their idolatry, their lack of love and obedience and devotion to Yahweh through the Mosaic covenant, and their inability to truly let righteousness and just justice flow out of them continuously to the poor, the needy, their neighbors, anyone. They were always using other people to make a profit or to get the upper hand in their own life other other people. This was all amplified through their religious hypocrisy. The fact that they thought that they could worship Yahweh and the other gods simultaneously and he'd be okay with that. The fact that they could mistreat people and exclude the nations and Yahweh would be okay with that. That they would constantly go back to Yahweh and worship as if they're just checking the boxes of rituals to make sure that everything was okay. Not realizing, not caring that the Deuteronomic law made it very clear that a relationship of love is what true obedience was, not just do certain things. Therefore, he warned them that exile would come, that he would use four nations, they would come and attack them and take them into exile. And so in 722, after the pre-Assyrian prophets warned them for many, 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 many years, Assyria came and sacked the ten tribes in the north and took them off into exile. And then after many, many pre-Babylonian prophets warning Judah in the south, that exile would be coming, just like it did for their older sister in the north. In 586, the Babylonians came and sacked them and took them into a- a- exile. Israel was unable to obey Yahweh because they did not know him in a relational way, and they did not love him in a relational way, and therefore they could not be transformed by him. Moses made it very clear in Deuteronomy 10 and 30, and Jeremiah reemphasized this later, that the hearts of humans are ever so hard, that the hearts of humans are hard and stubborn and selfish, that we seek to be autonomous to the exclusion of God and other people around us, and that the only thing that could change us and to have the desire and the ability to truly love God and love others was to have our hearts circumcised, that we had to be transformed. So Yahweh promised that one day, not only would he restore Israel and north and Judah and the south back into the promised land that he gave them as one nation, no longer divided, but that he would give them a new heart and that he would circumcise their hearts so that they would be able to, He'd give him a new heart and pour out his spirit on all people, regardless of age, gender, social status, ethnicity, so that they would truly be able to and want to love him and obey him. He would restore Israel back to the promised land. He would establish a new faithful Jerusalem with a righteous Davidic king in the land and make a new covenant with him. Even though the prophets are harsh and they constantly repeat the judgment for Israel's idolatry and social injustice. The prophets are also filled and rich with promises of restoration, redemption, renewal, bringing them back to the land, and making them people that they actually could obey. And so all throughout the prophets, and my notes on the pre-exilic prophets that are on my website, I've gone through and and broken down all the promises that God made to them throughout the prophets, And then put all the scripture references that highlight that so you can see that. So the main things that God focused on was they returned them into the land, that he would return them to the land and make this land new. And then he would individually change them. Those are the two major categories. So Yahweh would return Israel to the promised land. Yahweh would make the land like the Garden of Eden. The garden would cover all the world, that it would no longer be isolated in just Israel or Jerusalem, that there would be no more evil in all this land, which is the entire world. And the land Yahweh would establish a new Jerusalem. This Jerusalem would also be his cosmic mountain, where they would dwell with him on his mountain and in his temple. And he would dwell with his people. He would then place his righteous Davidic king as the ruler of the city, who we now know as Jesus Christ, and all the nations, regardless of ethnicity or their past, would come streaming to this cosmic mountain and dwell with God and Israel there together. Then moving into the second category of what he would do to us personally, he would make his people a faithful people. They would actually want to and have the ability to obey him and love him. This would make it possible this is made possible through a new covenant. Where he would, that he would establish with his people, a perpetual covenant that would go on forever. This covenant would not be broken like the Mosaic covenant, and Yahweh would write his law on his people's hearts and minds. He would also place his spirit in all of his people. They would all know Yahweh's will, and he would remove all their sins, and he would remove, forgive and he would forgive and remove all their sins. So all these promises that he's making, can be broken down into two categories. What God would do to return them to the land of promise and what he would do to that land. And then the second category is what he would do to redeem the individual people that live in that land, to make them able to obey him. These are the promises that God continually lays out in the pre-exilic prophets and reemphasizes them in the post-exilic prophets after they begin to return from the exile, and that all begin to get fulfilled in Jesus Christ in the Gospels and in the second coming in Revelation. Yahweh, we praise you for who you are. We praise you that this was your plan all throughout history. That you have been laying this foundation, developing these themes, and leading them into their final culmination in Christ. And right now, we're in that already, not yet. The temple has been torn down. It has been rebuilt with multiple gates and many dwelling places. And many people have begun to enter and continue to enter. And I pray that we can see that, that we would not get caught up in prophecies of the future. We would not get caught up in details of architecture and all that kind of stuff. But we would be caught up in the bigger picture that we are the kingdom of God that we are the garden, that we are the temple, that we are the Shekinah glory, not because we are that, but because you are in us, transforming us into a relationship with you. I pray that we would walk away so wowed and amazed by how Christ pulled all this together in himself, that that would become the passion, the fuel for us to go out into a dark, confusing, depressing world and become the light that you want us to be in expanding the garden and inviting more people in the dwelling places that they can experience now. You are not offering a relationship and a dwelling with you one day. You're offering it to everybody in the midst of depression, violence, racism, economic collapse, sickness, and pandemics. Right now, in the midst of all that, we can walk into a dwelling place with you and experience the kingdom of God and experience life. And then one day, because we experience it now, we have every confidence to persevere in you that one day you will completely destroy Gog and we will burn our weapons and the Garden of Eden will fill the whole world. In Jesus' name, amen.